Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. For now, let's turn to the Transfiguration. We have two scripture readings. They're both from the Gospels, and whenever we read from the Gospels, we like to uh, stand as we can physically or stand in your heart, uh, and we do that to hear the word of Christ speaking to us. So let's hear from Scripture. The good news from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Don't suppose for a minute that I have come to demolish the Scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I did not come to do away with them, but to complete them, to fulfill and accomplish their purpose. I'm going to put it all together and pull it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after the stars burn out and earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. The good news from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. Six days later... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus. The Gospel of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. And we'll spend some time walking through this story. which is a great bridge, as I said, from the season after the Epiphany into the season of Lent. And it's come, it comes up every year in the church calendar, and that always was intriguing to me at first, because I'm like, this is a weird story. Why every year do we take time to reflect on this story? And I hope uh, as we get into it today that we'll start to see new layers of it, new meaning of it, and we'll be swept up in it. So as you all know, we're walking through a big enough story to make sense of all of life, to make sense of uh, all of what comes to us in daily living. And we're in Act 4 that Jesus, who soon enough will be our rising king at Easter, right now uh, has shown up through the incarnation. God has come to us, and God has come to us in order to stay with the promise that we are not forsaken and that God will end all things with a final word that is yes and amen. And uh, that is needed because of us, right? We fall into sin and we have distorted God's creation intention and yet God is not giving up on his big story. And so um, we've been sitting in this epiphany season with a couple big themes. And this is the last Sunday that we'll sit with these themes. We'll move to a different focus in Lent. But in Epiphany, we've been asking the, uh, this question of like, where is God's light shining? Under the conviction that anything, when brought under the light of Christ, anything in your life, anything in my life, anything in scripture, anything at all, 
brought under the light of Christ suddenly takes on new significance, new shape. We don't always see it that way, right? I'm not saying it's easy. But if we, if we sit there, Christ will restore it, and Christ will restore it. That's the other theme we've been hitting on throughout Easter, is that Jesus is restoring all things. They take on a new meaning when he gets involved in them. And that idea really comes to its culmination, its, its high point in the story of the transfiguration. What we're going to find is that Jesus not only restores different stories in the Bible, he restores the whole thing. And so that's what is uh, our focus today. Jesus restores the Bible. Um, that's the story we've been walking through. Speaking of walking, I was walking through a Barnes & Noble uh, the other day, which I hadn't been in a Barnes & Noble in a really long time. I don't know that many other people have either. Uh, we'll, we'll all pray for Barnes & Noble and bookstores everywhere. Um, but as I was walking through Barnes & Noble, I came to the Christian section, and I spent some time there. There's nothing more disheartening to a pastor's heart than the Christian section of a bookstore. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm serious. Because, like, there's great stuff. And this Barnes & Noble, actually, they had, you know, curated a decent collection of stuff. There were really good books and really good resources and lots of stuff that was profitable. But there is always also just this buffet of terrible theology of escapism, of Gnosticism, of nationalism, of materialism, all wrapped up in a Jesus language, right? You guys have seen this? Uh, and, uh, and it's just this reminder that not everything that is Christian is Christian. And um, it's really important we remember that. Uh, we, that we remember that just because it has a Bible verse to back up its claim does not mean it is pointing us to Jesus. And I started thinking to myself, like, how is it possible that all of these books, with all of their biblical justification, like if you spread them all out on a big table, none of them are pointing to the same story. They're telling radically different ideas about who God is and what life is all about. What are we to do with that? What are we to do with that? There are lots of opinions about the Christian life and about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And it reminds me of that scene that Megan referred to earlier where about halfway through Jesus' ministry, he pulls his disciples aside and he says, who do you say that I am? And who do people say that I am? And essentially the disciples' answer is similar to the Christian book, you know, book section of the bookstore, right? They're like, well, some people think you're John the Baptist and others say that you're Elijah and some say that you're one of the prophets. There's lots of opinions about exactly what's going on here, Jesus. And then he looks at them and very directly says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter has this epiphany moment where it becomes clear to him. He says, you are the Messiah, right? And he has this breakthrough moment of confession. And Jesus says, yes, well done, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but God has revealed this to you. And I say, you too are Peter, right? You get this new epiphany over your life as you see this epiphany of who I am. You're gonna get a new epiphany of who you are. You are Peter, and upon this rock, Peter, I will build my church. And it's the first reference of church out of the mouth of Jesus. It comes on the reflection that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, and I highlight that event because it comes six days before the passage that Tony just read, the, the mysterious thing called the transfiguration. 
And, uh, and I think it's a good lead up. It's an important lead up as background context to what is about to happen on the Mount of Transfiguration. Last week, we leaned on Eugene Peterson as we looked at Exodus and the plagues. This morning, I'm going to lean a lot on Brian Zahn. Some of you are familiar with Brian Zahn. He does really uh, important theological work, particularly from like Transfiguration through Easter, I feel like is his sweet spot. So we're walking into good Brian Zahn territory. And so all credit to him. I heard him riffing on the Transfiguration one Sunday and this passage that seems bizarre to me suddenly took on some fresh significance and seemed clear. Uh, it went from very mysterious to suddenly like, oh, of course, that's what's being said here in this passage. And so I hope I can share that with you. Uh, you know, sometimes I get bored with the Bible. Sometimes I get frustrated with the Bible. Sometimes I have to go away from it for a season. Sometimes I get frightened by all that it actually has to say if I take it seriously. And that's okay, because God's playing a long game in our lives. He's going to see us through seasons of dryness and seasons of fullness. But sometimes we sit with the Bible, and it just doesn't play by our rules. And then there are other times where the lights go on and the dots connect, and we go, oh, <laughs> epiphany, right? And I think that's what's going on in this story here, at least for me. And so let's dig into it. Um, by the way, I know it's a little warm in here. Our AC is on, but it's struggling to keep up with us, so hang in there with me. Uh, we get to this mysterious event. Jesus takes up Peter, James, and John onto a mountain. Traditionally, it's Mount Tabor. And there he is transfigured before them, and his clothes become dazzling white such that no one could bleach them. This is already a strange story. They have this epiphany, a bright light. Jesus is dazzling white. There is a thick cloud. There is a voice from heaven. And then to top it all off, Moses and Elijah show up? This is weird. This is a weird story, right? And, uh, and, and what's going on here? Uh, I hope as we've walked through this big story over the last few months, you've begun to notice how often the Bible is working at a symbolic level. Certainly it talks literally to us, and certainly it talks narratively to us, but often it is also working on a deeply symbolic level. And so as we ask ourselves, what are Moses and Elijah doing here? I mean, this is strange. Moses has been dead for 1,400 years. Elijah left the building on a chariot nine centuries ago, and here they are in this story. Why? Why? Uh, not only are Moses and Elijah Old Testament heroes and they are, they're on the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament, right? But they're also deeply symbolic figures in Scripture. They're deeply symbolic because the Bible hasn't always been called the Bible. What it was known in these days is the Law and the Prophets. That's how it was referred to, right? Uh, the summary of what we would now call the Old Testament was then called the Law and the Prophets. This is why Jesus says, all the Law and the Prophets hang on these two commands, love God and love your neighbor. Or he says, don't suppose I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. In other words, he's saying these Hebrew scriptures that you have, they, they matter, and that's how they were referred to as the law and the prophets. Well, who is the ultimate symbol of the law? Moses. And who is the most iconic prophet in the Old Testament? Elijah. Elijah. They are the symbolic representatives of the Hebrew scriptures in that way. And they are the law and the prophets. What did the law and the prophets exist to do? The law existed 
to form a covenant people of God as a worshiping community that then would live for the sake of others. We talked about that, the wedding vows a few weeks ago. God set aside through the law this reminder of, I am coming to you, and I am covenanting with you, and I am committed to you, and will you be with me as well? That was the point of the law, to form a people of God that could be what, has God, what God has promised to the world in order that there would be some people living for the sake of others. Uh, what were the prophets all about? Well, the prophets were there basically to remind the people when they had fallen short of their covenantal commitment to the law right? They show up and say, don't you remember what this covenant was all about? And so Zahn points out that the prophets really only spoke against two things. They spoke against idolatry. And what is idolatry? It's wrong worship of God. And they spoke against injustice. And what is injustice? It's wrong love of neighbor, right? This is what all the law and the prophets hang on, love of God, love of neighbor. That was the point of the law and the prophets. And then Jesus says, Don't suppose that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to complete them, to fulfill them, to accomplish them, to bring them to their fullness. Jesus is saying about himself that he is going to do what the law and prophets could not do fully on their own. And that's the context for where we walk into this. And so what's going on here on this mountain is in some ways we may think of this as the real end of the Old Testament the real conclusion and completion of the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah show up here on this story, on this mountain, as the representatives of all that now must be handed over to Jesus in order that Jesus may fulfill and complete it. Moses, who is the first lawgiver, sees Jesus and he says to himself, I'm ready to pass on this baton to the one who will give the renewal of a better law. Elijah, the iconic prophet, gives his man ultimately not to Elisha, but to Jesus, who is the real, ultimate, final prophet, the word that God has to say to the world, calling us back from idolatry and injustice. And so Jesus is the mouthpiece of what God has to say. Moses and Elijah, then their work is done now. In this scene, their work is coming to a conclusion. It is being passed on to its fulfiller who will bring the completion of the purpose of the law and the prophets, this community of worshipers who love God and love neighbor. That's what's going on in the scene. And then Peter sees all of this. Peter's a good Jew, and the sight of Moses and Elijah must be pretty overwhelming. right? If you put him, like it's so easy to pick on Peter. I love Peter because he does so much better than I would do in these situations. Peter sees all of this. He's the first one to speak up at the staff meeting of like, what now? And, and he goes, well, Rabbi, I've got an idea. Let's make three dwellings, three sanctuaries, three pedestals. They're all going to be equal. There's one for you. There's one for Moses. There's one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. He was terrified, right? I love that little comment there. Yes, us too, Peter. Um, And so he has this idea, let's build these three pedestals. Now, Peter might have been thinking that he was elevating Jesus, right? Uh, We read this thousands of years later with a different lens, but Peter might have been thinking, hey, Elijah and Moses, they are already on Mount Rushmore. Jesus, let's get you up there too. Like, you finally have arrived at their level. Let's elevate you to their level. And so Peter says these things. He says, let's build these permanent dwellings. Now remember, Peter represents the church symbolically in our story because six days earlier, 
Peter had just confessed, you are the Messiah, and Jesus said, yes, and on you, I will build my church. And so Peter, representative of the church in our story, says, I've got an idea. Let's take Elijah and Moses and Jesus, and we'll make them all equal to each other, all as mouthpieces of what God has to say. And right as he says it, a thick cloud overshadows them, and a voice thunders from heaven, just like it did at Jesus' baptism, and it speaks loudly and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly when they look around, the dust settles, the disciples collapse, right? They're overwhelmed. They thought they were terrified before. They get up, they dust themselves off, and Elijah and Moses are gone. There is no one else for me, none but Jesus remains. Do we get the joke? Right? To use that language from earlier in Epiphany. Do we see the image that this story is telling us? Um, Moses and Elijah begin to recede. It's as if the text is saying, you have been given a lawgiver, and you have been given a prophet, and they have done good, vital work as witnesses in my story, but now you are given the Son. And Moses and Elijah take the same posture John the Baptist takes when his ministry became redundant because of Jesus. They fade into the background. They say essentially here, he must increase, we must decrease, yeah. right? Because all that they had been trying to point to is now standing right in front of them. He's here. And their words were a vital witness to get us here, but now the true and living ultimate capital W word of God is here, and he is the perfect picture of all they've been trying to paint. He is the exact lookalike, Hebrews 1 says, of the Father. He is God in flesh. He is the final epiphany. And so Zahn gives us this image that I think is really helpful. He essentially says that Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, these scriptures that had come before Christ, they're like the lesser lights in a pre-Christ sky. They are the moon and the stars. And on a moonlit night, you can find your way. It may not be as bright as you want it to be. You can find your way. You might stumble and trip over a branch here or there, but you'll, you'll get there. And if you study it long enough, you can sail across the ocean with nothing other than the stars in the sky, right? You can learn what they have to say about how to get where you're going. The stars and the moon are like the law and the prophets. But then, sunrise. And when the sun rises, the epiphany light of the blinding sun, the dawn of a whole new day, what happens to those lesser lights of the moon and the stars? They start to fade into the background, right? And so there's this epiphany of a new day on Jesus. It's why his clothes are so white. It's why his face is so radiant. In the light of Christ, the lesser lights start to fade. And when the sun comes up, the moon and the stars aren't extinguished. They're not eliminated. They're not, they're not put to, to rest, but they simply are eclipsed. They're simply outshined. And we don't look around in the middle of a bright day and go, I need the moon to guide me in that same way, right? It's still speaking in the same direction. Don't mishear me, and we'll get into what I mean by that as we keep going. But, but what's happening now is Moses and Elijah freed up to give their final bow. They give their full trust, their final endorsement to Jesus, and then they fade into the background. And every time the church tries to build three permanent shelters one to Jesus and one to these lesser lights, there is a voice that cries out, listen to my son. 
He is the finisher, the fulfillment, the finale, the purpose, the point. He is the word of God. The word was with God. The word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness does not overcome it. We have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son. He is full of grace and truth. The law indeed did come from Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. Really? Because the Old Testament's full of stories of people seeing God. But no one has ever seen God like this. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. And so it brings me back to Jesus' question. Who do people say that I am? Who am I on this big playing field of all these stories? It brings me back to that bookstore, all those different ideas of God. And we'll spend our last five or six minutes kind of just getting practical with this. What does this all have to do with us? And I think sometimes if we're honest, we get pretty different ideas about what it means to be a Christian from all the different things set out there about God and even from within the Bible itself. We might read the Bible and end up going, what do I do with the fact that this story over here seems to paint God in a really different light than this story over here. There are these disparate portraits of God. And the irony is the more you try to take Scripture seriously, the more you see this. It doesn't get more clear. It gets more like, what's going on with this? How do I reconcile this? There are times that the Bible seems to even behave at odds with what will later be revealed in Jesus. And some passages are confusing in that way. Some passages seem to even be in the dark about God. Of course they are, because the epiphany light had not yet shined, right? I love the Old Testament. It's why we've spent the last six months on the Old Testament stories. Uh, I think the Old Testament is wise. It is inspired. It is God-breathed. It is faithfully pointing us in the direction of all that will be fulfilled in Jesus, and it's deeply true, and it's fascinating, and it's good. Jesus loved the Old Testament, too. It absolutely shaped his life, but he reshaped it, too. He restoried it, too. And I want to ask us to really sit with this for a second, because what I'm about to say I think might sound wild, but I think if we sit with it, uh, it will kind of seem evident. Uh, here's the question. Did the scriptures prior to Jesus perfectly image and reveal the fullness of God? And I think the answer has to be no. Because if they did, we wouldn't have needed the revelation of God in Jesus in the first place, right? The whole point of the revelation of Jesus is that we did not have a perfect image of who God is, and thus Jesus must come to give us one. And that doesn't mean it's not all inspired. Don't mishear me. It means that sometimes what it is inspired to do is reveal why we need Jesus to complete the story, Right? Sometimes what is happening in Scripture is that the passage is revelatory in that we set it next to Jesus, and Jesus shines that much brighter in contrast yeah. to what we read otherwise. Right? And so it's important because we so often make and have been taught to make Peter's mistake. That if it's anywhere in this text, 
It's all equal in its authority. In other words, we make this a flat text. And that's where we end up with bookstores full of really different things about this life and about who God is. If we, if we think that it all carries equal weight to Jesus. But the Bible itself teaches that Jesus' authority is greater than other, other authorities that we read in Scripture. The Bible itself elevates Jesus above itself, right? That's what's going on in John 5, 39. You search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the Scriptures point to me, right? And the distinction matters because you can justify pretty much anything with a Bible verse. If you decide that you want to justify slavery, with a Bible verse. You can absolutely do that. If you decide you want to justify retributive violence or genocide or power over and against someone else, you can absolutely find a Bible verse to do it, right? And so for the Bible follower, anything in here is all I need to justify and God endorse whatever I want to do. If I can find a text that says it, I'm good to go. But for the Christ follower, those options are no longer allowed because we have to look to Jesus and we have to say, Jesus, you are the ultimate authority and this is why Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye or a a tooth for a tooth. You've heard that said. That's a quote from scripture. It's a quote from Moses. It's a quote from the law. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. Turn the other cheek. Elijah in the Bible called down fire on his enemies. And the disciples love that story. They love it so much. (laughs) I'm serious. They love it so much. You can bring the kids and I'm going long. They're like, Jordan, seriously, stop it. Come on in, kids. I'm almost done. They love that story so much that when they find their enemies in Samaria, they say, can we do what Elijah taught us to do? And what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. And he says, that's not how we do it anymore in my new way. He says, I tell you, love your neighbor and pray for those who persecute you. That's the full revelation of God. This is important because I think if we're honest... We want to call fire down on our enemies a lot more than we admit. We want to burn someone online, right? And Jesus says, that's not how we do it. So I got to wrap this up. Moses in the Bible, in the Bible, said, when you catch a woman in adultery, what should you do? You should stone her. But Jesus says, whoever's without sin, you throw the first stone, right? And then he says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. So you can use the Bible to refute Jesus. You can argue with Jesus from the Bible. The way I know is the the devil did it, right? You can find a verse to argue with God. You can use the Bible to resist Jesus. You can hide in the Bible to dodge what the Bible ultimately asks us to do. But whenever you do it, there's that pesky voice from heaven that says, this is my son, listen to him. So we'll end with this. Zahn says that our goal and our commitment and our baptism is not to be biblical. It is to be Christ-like. 
And that matters because the bookstore was full of ideas about biblical marriage and biblical manhood and biblical womanhood and biblical politics to give us a biblical nation. But we want to say that we are not biblicists. We are Christians. And Jesus is the ultimate word that God has to say. Let's end with N.T. Wright kind of wrapping a bow around Epiphany for us. He says, Jesus then brings the story of Scripture to its long-awaited climax. Through Jesus, the work of God's covenant with the people throughout the Old Testament is fulfilled. The covenant is renewed, evil is judged, forgiveness is brought to birth, new creation is inaugurated. Jesus thus does what Scripture had in a sense been trying to do, to bring God's fresh kingdom order to God's people and the world. He was in himself the true Israel, formed by Scripture and bringing the kingdom to birth. And finally, when he spoke of the scripture needing to be fulfilled, he was not simply envisioning himself doing a few scattered and random acts which corresponded to prophetic sayings. He was thinking of the entire storyline at last coming to fruition. This, I take it, is the deep meaning where Jesus insists that he has not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. The early church, and perhaps us too, must learn to read the Old Testament, both its story and its commands, in terms of what we have discovered in Jesus. Amen.